I guess why we do it is uh, because those risks exist. I think everyone knows that, you know, when you buy a scheme, you're not necessarily expecting it to be perfect. Um, but the, the real kind of nuance, I think, is about being able to understand whether a scheme uh, that someone is selling really matches the client's expectations of what they're buying. So, you know, this might be something which is a portfolio with a couple of really star projects that are very well developed, you know, almost construction ready. And there might be a long development tail um, of, um, of projects which perhaps, you know, sort of 50% there, um, some might make it, some might not. You would place a much lower value, market value on those, those projects. Um, and I think that the key thing is to understand, are you paying a premium for something which is being sold as a project which is perhaps construction ready, it might have a connection date in the next couple of years, um, in which case there is a huge amount to, to do to ensure that what you are being sold is achievable. Um, you know, perhaps uh, if you were buying a project which is much earlier uh, in its development stage, then you're happy to accept quite a lot more of those risks. Um, so I think it's all about whether you're matching the expectations ultimately with the price someone's paying for a project. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. Welcome to this Connectology podcast. This episode is on due diligence and I'm joined by two of the four Connectologists, Catherine Cleary and Pete Aston. And it's a topic about which I know next to nothing. So you're going to have to bear with me and you might not hear an awful lot from me. But I've got two questions to kick off and you're going to have to choose between you who does which. One of them is very simple. What is due diligence? And then the second one is why do we do it in the first place? So and just a little bit of context, um, it's um, by far and away the fastest growing um, of the of the services that we deliver. Um, I think that's that's relatively natural progression of the market because there are so many more projects that are getting through to um, to sale. They've got planning, they've got grid. So you'd expect that. Um, but I also think there are an awful lot of people who are um, out there selling projects and acquiring projects who, who are probably in, in relatively uncharted territory. So I think there's probably an awful lot that can be learned on, on the grid side. So with that little bit of context, um, what is it in the first place? I'll take that then, Hugh. You've set it up quite well to start with. Um, so it's all about the sort of acquisition of sites. So when developers are looking to buy projects, buy connections that you know other developers have, have already applied for offers for and got offers for it's the process of that developer trying to understand the risks on the project in terms of the electrical connection so it's it's working through the connection offer um everything that's happened since connection offer has been accepted trying to understand uh the main risks associated with um that connection which i you know we'll, we'll go through as we we uh carry on through the podcast cool i guess why we do it is uh because those risks exist, I think everyone knows that, you know, when you buy a scheme, you're not necessarily expecting it to be perfect. Um, but the the real kind of 
nuance, I think, is about being able to understand whether a scheme uh, that someone is selling really matches the client's expectations of what they're buying. So, you know, this might be something which is a portfolio with a couple of really star projects that are very well developed and, you know, almost construction ready. And there might be a long development tail um, of, um, of projects which perhaps, you know, sort of 50% there, um, some might make it, some might not. You would place a much lower value, market value on those, those projects. Um, and I think that the key thing is to understand, are you paying a premium for something which is being sold as a project which is perhaps construction ready? It might have a connection date in the next couple of years, um, in which case there is a huge amount to, to do to ensure that what you are being sold is achievable. Um, you know, perhaps uh, if you were buying a project which is much earlier uh, in its development stage, then you're happy to accept quite a lot more of those risks. Um, so I think it's all about whether you're matching the expectations ultimately with the price someone's paying for a project. So you're understanding the risks that you're going to be buying. Exactly. Cool. And what are you looking for when you are carrying out due diligence? I think have, have they done it right? Yeah. Yes. Every 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 consultant's favorite activity, really, just marking someone else's homework. And, and it's funny because it all starts with being given a whole load of information from uh, the sellers. Often we're acting on behalf of the buyers in in the circumstance, um, and you get access to a data room or get a load of of documentation sent through to you. So the the first thing that you go through when you're looking at this is, have I got all the relevant documentation that I might need? Often it's sent through to you, isn't it, Catherine, in a, a dump of like hundreds of documents. Yeah. And then the challenge there is, you know, which ones do we need to look at? Because you're not going to look at all the documents. So it's then trying to sift through and work out amongst that whole big uh, collection of documents, which are the most key ones, critical ones to actually review. And for that reason, due diligence is quite a responsive service by default. We have to work quite closely with clients because, as you say, you know, if, if actually it turns out you, you hit a massive red flag early on you've only spent a couple of hours sifting through the data room you don't want to pay us to do a really detailed bit of due diligence so we tend to break it down into kind of red flag due diligence that initial sniff test i think hugh hates that word and then kind of following up with um you know more detailed due diligence um you know as we get that more thorough documentation through it's maybe worth saying you know what road knight taylor do obviously is grid connection due diligence um when people are buying really large-scale projects you know we're often working as a, a part of a much wider team you know potentially looking at the legal um risks and and legal due diligence, commercial due diligence as well. There might be other technical specialists. I suppose at the distribution scale, Hugh, you know, there's perhaps a kind of slightly smaller scale of projects where a lot of developers would do their own in-house due diligence on things like planning. And they're kind of pulling us in as grid specialists because they don't have that internal um, expertise. Catherine, you, you've mentioned in the past that, you know, one of the things you're looking for um, is actually... Um, not so much inaccurate information, that, that the information that is missing that might be quite telling in itself. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes um, this is just a process which hasn't yet happened. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, perhaps a, you know, the worst end of the spectrum, a seller trying to potentially obscure kind of, you know, quite detrimental information about the project. So so the key thing there is not just being able to kind of read through the documents and thinking, does this sort of scan right? It's being able to say, you know, we know because we have seen, you know, a hundred forty nine point nine megawatt one through two kV connection offers that you should have the following documentation and actually if you haven't been through that process if you haven't got a, a formal variation letter as a result of going through the project progression process the transmission impact assessment process you know that is an immediate red flag you know just having an email from a, a DNO engineer saying yeah it was fine we added you to an appendix G not good enough you know th this is so it's that extra level of, of 
due diligence, you know, making sure the documentation is there to support it. Um, and that ultimately, this is what's going to um, underpin a contractual arrangement. You are, you are acquiring the site um, and that those those contracts are based on the, the documentation which has been shared. So it's really key that everything is documented and that you're getting someone to look at this who knows what should be there. And just in terms of what should be there, that it's sometimes about the, the hidden cost that actually the documentation can't point you towards it, but there are hidden costs in there. Yeah, we try and pull this out in general, actually, for all our customers, um, even when we're doing things like connection offer reviews um, for developers we work with very closely, making sure that customers really understand the full grid costs. So, you know, quite often in sort of teaser documentation um, for a site that's being sold, you'll see a kind of pounds per kilowatt figure. Um, that will often just reflect um, the connection offer costs. So the cost of the DNO or the transmission uh, operator to connect the system um it would be very common for there to be additional costs in there which you know when i described what they were things like the civil works for a 132kv substation you know anyone would say well that's a grid cost but it won't be included in your grid offer because your dna will have said this is a, a customer responsibility um so we call them customer works um and at yeah at distribution that might be something like civil works um, or a substation enclosure it might be few hundred thousand or it might be you know a million pounds worth of works at transmission your customer works which are not included in your grid offer could be a 433 kv transformer you know 50 million pounds worth of works so it is really important to be clear about what the entire grid costs are um, and they are not just the things included in the connection offer just a couple of things on that first of all do third party works come into that in every offer you get you should get some sort of a statement on third party works charges um, especially for, for transmission schemes. And quite often it just says no third party works are required. Who's said no third party works are required? Has the third party said no third party works are required? Or is that just someone crossing their fingers and hoping for the best? Or is, uh, it, is it no third party works have been identified at present? Well, yeah. Um, and, and so actually you've, they haven't yet gone through that process of contacting the third party to try and work out whether there's you know significant costs to come through that channel so that's often quite a really crucial one for us and, to, and just to, to explain raise. so so that third party if you're looking at transmission offer that third party would be the distribution network operator who's mostly impacted or not always so other customers other, well, other, other transmission customers so you might have you know a big oh, nice. nuclear power station they, they could be a third party if you were connecting into the network close to them offshore wind farms are third parties for quite a lot of uh, connections in east anglia so they're they're essentially like a consultee would that be right that they would be approached by yeah. the transmission operator? Ah, or the well, ESA? this is this is one of the problems with third party works is the process is really clunky. So the ESO National Grid ESO in the offer says you need to contact the third parties, uh, and so then it's the responsibility of the developer, the customer, to go and contact those third parties in order to work out whether there's any third party work. So the ESO sort of takes a step back and says there's nothing to do with me. Um, Apart from in some instances when they say, yeah, we'll get involved. Because we've identified four third parties and they are affecting 20 offers. So they say, well, actually, it makes much more sense for yeah. us to do it. I think you're right. It is kind of consultees. It's a bit like you're building an extension out the back of your house and it's all the people who you have to go and say, <laughs> yeah. does this block out your light? <laughs> yeah. And obviously that um, third party works as a rabbit hole we could we could um, spend hours in. So the other question was actually the, if you're looking at due diligence, is there much of a difference between distribution and transmission schemes? I guess one of the key differences on the distribution side is that uh, you have to have gone through the transmission assessment process. So 
a project progression or a modification application, something along those lines. So um, you can have got a really good offer from the DNO, but if you haven't gone through that transmission assessment process, you, you don't know what the full impact of timescales and costs is. So, so that's, that is one crucial difference between distribution and transmission schemes. Um, I think one of the other ones, as Catherine was saying, but earlier is just the, the differences in costs that you might experience on the, on the sort of customer side of things, the balance of plant costs. I suppose also, um, just uh, perhaps like an observed difference recently, the majority of transmission schemes which are being transacted are probably at a relatively early stage. So um, what we, ha we have actually done due diligence on one much more advanced project with a, a much closer connection date, but, but perhaps things which are coming to the market now might be things with kind of 2028 connection dates. Actually, they might not have had very much design work done by the transmission operator. So you're doing more of a kind of bare bones, skeletal kind of contractual review of all of that offer documentation and identifying what needs to happen over the next couple of years for that project to become real. Um, whereas at distribution, we probably see the whole, you know, the whole kind of spectrum of sites, you know, from the person who says, yeah, we can build this for April 2024. I mean, you know, with a massive pinch of salt. I think I saw that this morning. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, you can't build anything for April 2024 unless you've got a very, very friendly transformer manufacturer, I would say. <laughs> Cool, thanks. Good time to take a break? Great. If you're liking this podcast so far, you may want to pop over to the Connectology page on Road Knight Taylor's website and sign up to the Connectology newsletter for much more know-how, insight and thought leadership in electricity network connections. The link to this is in the description. Don't miss out on any of the articles, explainers, videos, webinars and podcasts that Road Knight Taylor's Connectologists share to give you an edge and help you overcome your grid frustrations. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your, your break. So a huge topic for me and a massive talking point here um, within Road Knight Taylor, um, and it should be a huge talking point within the industry, but it isn't yet, um, is outage risk. And there is a um, definitely a growing realisation that it's a, a growing issue. Um, you know, which is great um, and more the merrier. And I'm assuming it's it's a big part of due diligence, right? It is because people perhaps think outage risk and due diligence. And the first thing they think of is, can I get an outage for my connection date to happen? So I'm uh, buying a project and it's got a connection date of 2025. Is that EHV outage or transmission outage confirmed with the DNO? When we say outage risk, Hugh, what you, what you mean actually is the ongoing risk over the next 25 years of this project. Actually, is it a bankable project or is it a project which is going to be subject to so much potential constraint and outage as a result of network conditions that, you know, you're not going to get your money back. Um, and I, I think it's, it's that second element which people are aware of it. I think they kind of tend to have a slightly um, tunnel vision. Perhaps, you know, they think, see things like A&M and think, oh, I need to think about curtailment. But we don't more broadly think about outage risk as a matter of course for kind of business as usual, non-firm connections on the networks. And, and certainly outage risk has been a thing at distribution connections for, for a long time. Um, we have done a podcast <laughs> and webinar on this anyway. Um, but you know, with growing numbers of 132kV connections at distribution, outage risk starts to become more of a broad issue. And then at transmission, uh, a lot of the connections are, are in the pipeline now um, are just single circuit connections, some of them with very interesting connection solutions, which are definitely non-firm and you know are at risk of being switched off for, for outages. 
at transmission as well um, that we're seeing quite big risks in terms of outages um, that perhaps haven't been seen before at transmission. And I guess one good thing is that that tends to be quite formally signposted at transmission. So, so um, restrictions on availability um, are something which are documented very clearly in a connection offer. Um, there is a red flag there saying there are some restrictions that apply to this connection. Getting from that knowledge to know that, that this might be an issue to a more quantitative understanding of what that means for the returns on the project, the actual generating uh, sort of capability of the scheme over the year um that's quite a lot harder potentially at transmission i think pete yeah you know, it's certainly the availability of information isn't always there to, to actually work out what that means even historically let alone going forwards into yeah. the future and i think that that's something you know that you can't really stress enough how much is going to happen going forwards over the next 10 years we have one of the you know the most ambitious transmission reinforcement plans ever uh, and it's going to lead to a lot of outages yeah but but not only that We've got a lot of connections that are going to be offer, schemes that are going to be offered non-firm connections specifically so that they can connect ahead of all these outages that are going to happen uh, to, to reinforce the network. But those connections are then at risk of being switched off because there's going to be so many outages happening. So um, it's going to be a really interesting scenario to see um, what that looks like. And I don't even know if the transmission companies are in a position to even give any realistic indication as to what the impact is going to be over the next 10 years. So when you're carrying out due diligence, what what are you looking for then in order to, uh, to kind of get a bead on that level of the level of risk? I guess the absolute gold standard, which which we have had recently on one project, was a transmission operator able to say, here's your list of restrictions. Um, here's the historic data to show how those circuits have behaved in the past. And here is our 10-year plan to show what we are planning to do to those circuits between now and 2032. This this was, you know, a developer who'd done quite a lot of work. They knew this was an issue um, and, and we'd sort of identified that they needed some of this data and they they were then able to provide that as a kind of supplementary request. So due diligence, you know, it's a bit of a conversation back and forth to say, here are these risks. We want to know a bit more about these following subject areas. Back back and forth with the vendor or back and forth with the network operator? Back and forth with the vendor. So bear in mind for due diligence, you know, it's quite key to understand the commercial relationship at the point you are doing due diligence, hopefully you haven't bought the thing. So it's still <laughs> theirs to solve the problems. So this is, you know, eff effectively the kind of the client or the potential acquirer of the project um, using us as a, a, a consultant um, to raise those questions back to the vendor. The vendor then kind of doing their own homework to sort of produce the most robust set of documents they can to justify the value of the project. Okay, so that's the gold standard. And that gold standard was after being able to ask the right questions to request the right data and having a transmission operator who is able to provide it. So what's the difference between the gold standard? Well, and what you normally get is, as a minimum, you should get, be, should get told what outages you're going to be switched off for. So that you certainly get that in transmission offers um, and, and in most distribution offers. Uh, it might be in the small print somewhere in a distribution offer, you know, stuck in page 20 or something. And by the way, you're going to be switched off for these list of outages that you hadn't really tweaked. Um, so so that should be the minimum that, that you get. Um, uh, the, the next stage would be some historic information, um, but often you have to ask for it or chase it, um, and it's not always that readily available, even though it says in the offer, if we're going to give you some constraints, we'll give you... A list of historic outages and you go, well i don't have that so you, you chase for it and then they go oh we can't really get that and 
yeah, or we can only get maybe five years. Yeah. And it often needs quite a lot of interpretation when it arrives, doesn't it? Well, Being able to say, well, w- was yeah. this a reasonable five years? Or was it really good because in the six years before this, you'd taken the entire line out for 180 days? Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're working with the scheme that's already connected, um, who's experiencing huge amounts of constraints because they potentially didn't dig into this um, enough in the first place. Uh, to understand what the potential risks could be yeah. um, with these sorts of things. So, so you know, outage risks are, are up there as one of the probably key issues. I did um, uh, have the pleasure of actually listening to you, Catherine, um, on a call, having carried out some due diligence on a Scottish transmission connected project with um, significant intertrip risk. And it was absolutely fascinating to really skilled, experienced investment directors and the kind of the grilling, the detail that they needed to go into in order for them to assess the project. That was quite, I thought, wow, this due diligence looks like quite fun. Not, not for me, clearly, but it was, um, it was very cool. So that's, that's outage risk. What are the other risks that you're, you're looking for? Uh, well, I guess one of the next ones is curtailment from flexible connections. So that'd be like active network management, trying to understand um, you know, on this sort of automatically ramped up and down connection that you've got, um, how much curtailment uh, have you are you likely to have? Uh, so some DNOs will provide a curtailment report with some sort of predicted level of curtailment. Um, some DNOs provide some data. Some DNOs provide nothing. Uh, and you've got to then try and work out what that means. But it's then trying to work out, well, is, is, is that a reasonable level of curtailment? And then trying to help clients on the understand the processes they can go through to try and under- dig into that curtailment um, potentially look at scenarios ar- around it to try and understand what could happen the what ifs if if you if all the other customers ahead of them pulled out you know how much better does it get um, what about if demand on the network reduces you know it could get worse so it's to try and help them understand what if scenarios just just looking at curtailment, where does due diligence stop? Because, I mean, I take it you're not just setting sail and carrying out curtailment modelling. What would you be expected to do as a kind of like a default minimum? You might ask for their curtailment modelling. So uh, often, you know, the kind of initial red flag due diligence is really about pushing a vendor to say, you know, how well have you de-risked this project? And sometimes actually a seller, you know, a seller might be forced to sort of say, you know what, we're going to go away and do some more work and come back to the market with this project and in, a, in such a way where we're able to de-risk this. Obviously, you've got to remember, uh, you know, especially if a site isn't in exclusivity, so you might have multiple people, parties looking at this, you know, it's obviously not very efficient for them to all go away and do their own homework. Um, and they might not be given enough information by the vendor to do that. So often it's, it's kind of posing the questions back, identifying the risks, posing the questions back then once you do get to a position where actually perhaps you you are the exclusive um purchaser uh you are now in a position where you might undertake your own kind of due diligence curtailment risk assessment you might review someone else's curtailment assessment in quite so a lot mark of detail somebody else's homework that must be i i did i did watch philip doing that i think it was just yesterday actually and that was that was quite fun on an early stage project i think okay you know say so, so something which was being sold at a lower value um and the developer was open about the fact they hadn't progressed it that far um then actually a follow-up to due diligence so perhaps you know more detailed due diligence might well be us undertaking you know a kind of an initial curtailment estimate 
I think um, one of the other things, Hugh, we, we haven't really touched on it here, but um, but there's there's one other thing which I think we look at due diligence more than we do when we say do a connection offer review because these projects are a bit further down the line, especially for the schemes which are being sold as perhaps um, you know construction ready, is look a lot more at the actual electrical engineering design of the scheme. Um, and this is quite interesting from a geeky perspective for Pete and I, but really what we're looking at is, okay, so someone's got a 50 megawatt connection on paper and as an offer from the DNO, but is what they're planning to build actually able to deliver a compliant 50 megawatt scheme? And you would be amazed how often the answer is no. Um, so the, the the really common one is um, reactive power capability. So you have a requirement in your offer to be able to operate um, a range of power factors at your connection point. And that means you have to build enough capability somehow to produce that reactive power as well as your, your active power, so as well as your megawatts. Um, and this is uh, you know, it's it's something which perhaps isn't very well understood, you know, more widely beyond the engineers. I'm looking at Hugh's face <laughs> and he's going, oh, yes, completely Greek to me. But the reason for highlighting it at this stage is that, um, you know, if you if you get that wrong, if you don't do that piece of design or, or you sort of underestimate what you need to actually install in terms of your inverters, it has a really important impact, which is that when you come to do your compliance studies, so someone says you can't comply as a 49.9 megawatt scheme, um, you're not able to meet that power factor range. Um, so we're going to derate your project and you might become a 45 megawatt scheme overnight through you know really the fault of just not doing some fairly basic kind of concept design engineering losing 10% of the value of your project and that happens again and again on projects especially at yeah, distribution I, level I think, um, Philip um, had one the other day where the issue was around fault level and that the 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 data in the application and nobody picked up on it all the way through to getting close to energization and and the data was wrong and therefore they were going to be severely limited and i think that was even more than 10 percent. so that that's a that's a common thing is it? It, it, gets... it is a surprisingly common thing i think um you know uh, we've had stricter limits applied so this has got this this job of, of complying your compliance um when you energize has got slightly harder since g99 came in about five years ago and people are still learning that lesson it's harder for a one through two kV connected scheme. So that is like an important thing. If, if that was the one thing you took away from the reactive power geek chat, um, it is that if, if, if you have a one through two kV scheme rather than a 33 kV scheme, it's something you need to think about much earlier. And when you say much earlier, because that's much earlier than due diligence, or is it? It's much earlier than placing your balance of plant order. So you want to be making sure that you're when you're ordering your inverters, you have thought about this. You've thought about what installed capacity do you need to comply. Um, ideally, you're doing it right at the point when you submit your grid application. You know that's that's what we do, right? You know that's that's value that we add, making sure that someone from day one is designing a scheme which can comply. Um, but the point of, of no return really is once you've ordered your inverters, um, you've got planning permission for a limited number of containers on site. Um, you know if it's batteries something like that. Um, at that point, you you know you are a you're a bit stuffed. So somebody's acquiring a project and it's fine if they know about this issue and as as soon as the, the, the deal's gone through, they can actually get motoring on these these known risks. So uh, what else are the, the, the big bear traps? That I think some of the other bear, well, one of the other bear traps is um, just the deliverability of the project on the DNO side or the transmission side is, you know, what, what physical works have they got to do to actually make this connection happen? So... That that could be in actually just connecting um, to to the near to your point of connection. If there's a cable route involved, you know, ha have all the easement been obtained on the cable route? You know, if you're that far down the project, or have you got 
a, a reasonable chance of getting easements on that or are you going in the road you know what infrastructure crossings have you got to try and overcome so there's a lot to work through on that um, and then there's the is there any reinforcement that's happening up on the network if there is what progress has the DNA made on this reinforcement scheme so uh, if they said it's going to be finished in 2024 have, are they working on it at the moment um, are they delayed by two years and so therefore are you going to be delayed by two years so I think it's really important to get into that construction side of it from from the network operator point of view uh, to understand what their program is in an offer you'll get a predicted time scale for connection and it might say you know three years from from when you accept the offer so someone can take that and go well i can be connected within three years but what they really mean is three years from where i get paid to start doing the detailed design work and start the scheme so they might not have ever been given that instruction um so if they haven't you know they're, they're still going to be three years away from being able to deliver the scheme so it's really trying to understand uh you know and getting the the client you're working for to to, to understand the risks of well what's the vendor done you know have have they done any of this due diligence work themselves have they pushed the dnos have they got any indication on timescales has there been any plant ordered from the dno side that that can catch people out I think one final bear trap for me, which is probably quite sort of topical, is inflation. Um, so <laughs> it is absolutely w worth understanding that uh, when we have grid offers, both at transmission and distribution, they are in the pricing of the day. Um, and, and that might even actually be, you know, a grid offer you got in 2020 might really have been prepared using a DNO's 2019 cost base. Um, and there is no uh, requirement whatsoever for them to hold themselves to that cost. It's all just an estimate. So, you know, we have seen significant cost increases um, in, in kind of main electrical plant um, and that, that, you know, seems to be set to continue. So it is a really important step actually for any kind of investment director to be looking critically at the costs, especially associated with old offers and saying, what is this actually going to cost me in today's 2023 pricing? And that's part of DD, right? Yeah. Cool. Just uh, occasionally, um, probably far too often uh, in reality, clients would have bought projects and then brought them to us um, when uh, issues haven't been picked up at due diligence and any of those that kind of spring to mind that you think if only we'd been shown this project earlier i think that's probably a general true statement for quite a few early transmission acquisitions where probably any parties that did due diligence didn't really have the understanding or expertise to, to see how transmission connections specifically were delivered and perhaps delivered differently. So things like tertiary winding connections, which looked like a 50 megawatt connection, um, but but actually, you know, potentially have quite a lot of hidden costs because of things like grid code requirements, national grids, um, sort of comms requirements and so on. Um, so we have seen that on a couple of schemes, you know, where, where actually the, there was some due diligence done, but probably not with the right focus. Okay, cool. And and the whole grid code requirements, which you know, as you know, is all Greek to me. But is that about to say another podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's another <laughs> podcast, but maybe one I'll sit out of. Thanks. Um, anything, Pete, from you? Well, just just a sort of issue I raised earlier around outage risks that you know we have worked worked with a few clients on schemes that are connected and have got real outage problems that could have been addressed um at, at earlier stages so it just it does that just goes to show to me that due diligence is really important um you know get it right in the first place in your applications and you know initial connection offer reviews but definitely get it right if you're looking to buy projects because... and, and i guess it's it could have been addressed but could have been identified 
um and that's that i guess the thing about knowing the risk that you're acquiring because that yeah. that particular project i know was was millions in lost revenue per year and sort of peaking at something like 10 million and that's the that's the kind of thing that you, you really do want to weed out at due diligence uh, great thank you both i now know at least something about due diligence it's um, been fascinating and um, i look forward to catching you up with you on the on the next podcast thank you thanks you thanks you thanks everybody for listening and taking your time and i hope this has been worthwhile Thank you for listening to this episode of the Connectology podcast. If you found it helpful, please share it with any of your colleagues or connections you think may be interested. And please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content. You can find out more about our services at roadnighttaylor.co.uk, link in the description, where you can also sign up to our free Connectology newsletter for more news and thought leadership in network connections. If during this podcast you found yourself wondering what it would be like to have a Road Knight Taylor connectologist in your life, please do email laura at roadnighttaylor.co.uk to find out how their game-changing skills and insight can change the game for you too.